Well, good morning. It's a joy to be here on, on this uh, Lord's Day, and especially to uh, see you after last week. It was a rough week for a lot of us. Let's, let's pray real quickly, and I just ask the Lord to bless. Lord, we, we are thankful so much for the ability to come to the Lord's table and to celebrate the goodness of Christ. We thank you that you give us daily provision and daily grace, and Lord, uh, our 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 state has been through uh, a very difficult time, so we ask that you'd give grace and strength to those who have been uh, enormously or even marginally afflicted by the, the, the waters and the flooding, and sh show us how to respond and be kind to people. Uh, but th thank you that you do provide for us and that uh, you're gloriously good. Make us a responsive, kind people in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a day when people are fascinated with superheroes. We have a, a whole group of them, including this guy. I just think Thor's cool. Um, and, and this guy who's been around a long time. And this guy. And then my favorite superhero, this guy. Yeah. Um, and one reason I think that we sometimes are enamored with superheroes is that we can see our lives as somewhat pedestrian or dull. And my thesis this morning is this, is that you are called to the heroic. You're called to be a person of deep significance. You're called to represent Christ, to be a witness of his grace. A hero, by definition, is a person of distinguished courage or ability admired for their brave deeds and noble qualities. Brave deeds, noble qualities. There are heroes among us this morning who live with courage and nobility and dignity, who should be admired and esteemed, and you're called to that. Now, years ago, 1987, there was a book that was enormously popular in our culture called The Closing of the American Mind by a man named Alan Bloom. And in the book, written in 1987, this professor who taught at Yale and Cornell and Paris and the University of Chicago uh, talked about the American mind, how we think and how we're not thinking and so forth and so on. But he says this. I'm just going to read two paragraphs. 1987 now. Okay, students these days are in general nice. I choose the word carefully. They are nice. They are not particularly moral or noble. Such niceness is a facet of democratic character when times are very good. Neither war nor tyranny nor want has hardened them or made demands upon them. The impossible dreams of the 1960s proved to be quite possible within the loosened fabric of American life. Students these days are pleasant, friendly, nice, and if not great-souled, at least not particularly mean-spirited. Their primary preoccupation is themselves understood in the most narrow sense. So we're not called to primarily niceness. We're called to be people of destiny. We're called to be people who are 
heroic. I want to introduce you this morning to a hero as we start a study of a small portion of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. His name is John the Baptist. We read about John in the opening verses of Mark. I'm going to be in Mark verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason that John the Baptist is very important is because hundreds of years before that, the, the people of Israel have been told the day of Messiah is coming, and the day of Messiah will not come unless and until a reincarnation or reconfiguration of Elijah of old walks among you and prepares the way of the Lord. Listen to Malachi chapter 4, the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 1 and following, or verse 1 and following. For behold, the days are coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither with root or branch, but for you, you who fear his name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So Malachi says, the day of the Lord is coming a day of glory, a day when you'll be released like calves from the stall and you'll leap for joy, uh, a day of, of judgment, a day when right will be called right and wrong will be called wrong. And before the coming of Messiah King, Elijah will come out and he will preach, and he'll preach in such a way that people will respond and the hearts of the fathers will turn to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And so John the Baptist, the Bible says, was that Elijah to come who preached and who ushered in the glory of the kingdom of God. So this morning I want to give you this thesis. John the Baptist was heroic. And he was heroic 
for three reasons almost just this morning. Reason number one is John the Baptist knew his place. He says these unforgettable words in Mark chapter 1, verse 7. He says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And in John's culture, and in many cultures of the world today, the lowest of the low and the servant pantheon is the one who bathes feet or touches feet. If you see in the Middle East, the sign of ultimate disrespect is to take your sandal off and to throw it at someone. It's the lowest of the low gesture. And John says, I'm not even worthy to stoop and untie his sandals. See, he says in John chapter 3, the, he talks about the bride and the bridegroom. He says in verse 28 through 30, You yourselves bear me witness, said John the Baptist, that, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. See, John experienced the overwhelming freedom that comes from giving up the endless quest of trying to teach and show others that you are really significant. It's great freedom in that. He, he said, I'm part of something much bigger than me. It's called the kingdom, and the Messiah king must increase, but I must decrease. It's really not about me. It's about Jesus, and that's the call of every child of God. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about me. Like the Westminster divine said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's like the Apostle Paul said. He said, you know, I was one day a Pharisee, Paul says in Philippians 3. I was trying to work my way into the favor of God, and I was circumcised on the eighth day, and I was a member of the tribe of Benjamin. When he came to observing the law, I was faultless. There was no observable problems in my life. He said, when it came to zeal, I persecuted the church of the living Christ. He said, but when I met Christ and saw that my salvation was secured through the cross, through what he did for me as my substitute, all these things that were so dear to my soul and I based my existence upon and I held up as a means of bragging or gloating, all these things are nothing more than rubbish to me, refuse, that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from what I can do but a righteousness that comes from God, and it is by faith. It's not about me. See, he must increase, and I must decrease. C.S. Lewis says it so well in mere Christianity. He says that the test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget all about yourself or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. That's better just forget about yourself. He says, the point is, brief paragraph, listen, the point is that, that God wants you to know him, wants you to give you himself, and if you really get into any kind of touch with the living God, you will in fact be humbled, delightedly humbled, feeling the infinite relief of having once and for all got rid of the silly nonsense about your own dignity, 
which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. Stop. He wrote this in the early 1950s. What would he say today after the self-actualization movement, after the self-affirming movement, whatever? You know, it's just amazing. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of the silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've got ourselves up and are strutting about like the little idiots that we are. I wish I'd gone further in humility. I could probably say more about it. But we need to get rid of the false self with all of its, quote, look at me, or the, quote, aren't I a good boy with all of its posings and posturings. And he says this. This is a great sentence. To get even near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of water to a man who is in the desert. See, God wants a personal relationship with us that is growing and vibrant and strong. And it comes through saying with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. It is to get rid of all the incredible, difficult affirmations that you have to lay out before people to give credence to your own existence and to say, it's not about me, it's about him. So John the Baptist was great because he knew his place. Secondly, John the Baptist was great because he knew his message. His message was this. It's found in verse 4. He says, And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance, same chapter. Verse 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So John preached repent. Jesus preached repent. The apostles preached repent. The great day of Pentecost Peter unfolds the gospel and says, Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose victorious over death, but you put to death the son of glory. And they were cut to their hearts and they said, what must we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins shall be forgiven. So what are we going to do to forgive? What, what do we do? And then Paul goes to a place called the Areopagus. In Acts chapter 17, the Areopagus was a place of philosophical disputations, and they sat around talking about endlessly about what's true and what's false, and what about this movement and this, that movement. And, and Paul finally stands up and says, just give me a chance to proclaim to you the living God who is real and true. He says this, the times of ignorance, in the times of ignorance, God overlooked, but, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has Fix a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him out of the dead. And so I, I read this and I go, Jesus said repent. The apostle said repent. Paul, uh, the, John the Baptist said repent. John the Baptist said repent. The kingdom of God is coming. Jesus said repent because the kingdom of God is among you. The apostle said repent because the kingdom of God has been inaugurated through the work of Jesus. So it's, it's incredibly important. Repent. Re repent 
Repentance is a, a change in thinking and heart attitude and action that causes you to turn from one way and do an about face and go the other. Now hear me. Repentance is part of saving faith. To try to separate trusting Christ and turning from willfulness is, is like trying to separate two metals that have been forged together. You can't do it. Now listen to this. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, says this, Article 2 and 3. By it, repentance, a sinner out of sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and the odiousness of sin, as contrary to the holy and righteous law of God, and upon apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, to those who are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them unto God, proposing to live in the way of his commandments. Next paragraph. Although repentance is not to be rested upon for the satisfaction of sin, that's Christ alone and faith in Christ alone. Yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Now, now hear me. So you're saved by faith, but if there's not repentance, then it's not true faith. So maybe it's better to see a little diagram than to try to find it. So here's the way I understand repentance is that I don't know which comes first, one or two, but, but repentance happens throughout our lives. Repentance happens when you come to faith in Jesus. Repentance happens as you grow in faith. So the question I ask you is, are you repenting? Am I repenting? So what, this is what happens. Number one, you see the, the, the filth and the odiousness of sin. You see that sin operates on a diminishing return. You see that you've been separated from God by a sinful life, that you were born in sin, that you're separated from him. And as you see the, the filth of sin, and the sin operates on the diminishing return law, you correspondingly see the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see the glory of Christ, the, the, the wonder that the eternal God became a man and lived a perfect life and embraced and cared for people. And as you see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the glory of Christ, you, you, you drop what you're doing in this way, and you turn and you go his way. That, that's the way it works. Now, 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 I hope as I grow older that the beauty of Christ is primary. But at times it's just that sin stinks, and Jesus is glorious. But that's what, you see the odiousness of sin, the filth, the, the, the putridness of sin, and you see the beauty of Jesus, and you drop and you turn. Repentance is more than knowledge. It's a turning. And that, this is where we get confused sometimes. And this is incredibly important. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Augustine. One of the great teachers of the church died in 430. Augustine was raised in a quasi-Christian home. His dad was not a believer. His mom was a believer of the strongest stripe. She prayed for him and wept for him and 
longed to see him come to faith in Christ. He became a believer at age 32, but before that, he was a uh, very immoral man. He just loved sexual indulgence. He just loved it. In fact, Augustine went through various paths. He was he's a PhD in rhetoric. He was brilliant. He was involved in thisism and thatism, Manichaeism. He was involved in this, so forth and so on. Started hearing the gospel preached, and God turned his heart. But Augustine had a prayer before he was converted. Long before he was converted, and this was his prayer: "God, make me sexually pure, not just yet." Yeah, he prayed that. God, make me sexually pure, but not, but not, not yet. And so he lived a, a, a life of sin. He, this is what he said. He said, he said it, it's one thing to see the land of peace, to see it, and another to hold to the way that leads there to it. And in other words, Augustine would say, long before I was converted, two, three, four years, after I escaped Manichaeism, and I was sitting under the, the preaching of a guy named Ambrose, who was a great preacher, I, I was convinced here that God was gloriously triune, had no beginning, who had no end. I was convinced here that the cross really happened and the tomb was really empty. I was convinced here, but my heart wasn't there. My heart wasn't there. And then one day he was, he was, he was, in, he was tormented. He was tormented. And one day he's outside of his house in a garden. There's a wall around the garden. And he's with his buddy, and his buddy's saying, you know, come to Jesus, man. And I said, he heard a child's voice saying, take it up and read it. Take it up and read it. And as Augustine said, as I heard that child's voice, I looked down, and there was the book of Romans. And he said, I picked it up, and it fell open to Romans 13, where it says, in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And Augustine said, at that point, I said, God, I repent. I run to you. And Augustine said, that's when I was converted. And then he says, that which I was so slow to let go of, now I gladly give to him. Because you are my soul's satisfaction. It's a great story. Every conversion is a great story. But that's a wonderful story, age 32. So, so what, what I'm saying is, is, is I meet people frequently, and I talk to them, so what do you think about faith? Well, I said, I believe that Jesus is, is, is God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And then, and then basically the way they live and the way they respond to other questions is, so what? So what? Big deal. It's a big deal. So my question to you and to me is, are you repenting. Repentance doesn't save you, but repentance is a fruit of knowing the living God. So, so John knew his message. Repent. The third thing about John that, that I that I love and that really I find incredibly convicting. I say the life of John the Baptist, and I just say, Lord, I need to be more like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was heroic because he spoke with appropriate boldness. And in Matthew chapter 3, this is what he says. He, he says, it says that when... 
when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees. Now stop, Pharisees were the religious elite of that day who were proud of their performance and who did everything they could do to earn the favor of God. And they fasted twice a week and they gave and they were the purity party and it was a wonderful elitist club to join that made you very proud. And the Sadducees were the lawyers, the arbiters of the day, who were the elitist and the wealthy. So two different groups that didn't really like each other that much, the purity party and the establishment with all the money. They came and they're observing John the Baptist. It doesn't say they were baptized. They were observing him. So when these purity people and these elitists came and they saw him, this is what John the Baptist said. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say that we have Abraham as our father. Abraham, the Old Testament father of Israel. John the Baptist says, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, so... so John the Baptist says to them, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. Not a term of endearment, if you're wondering. Not a term of endearment. Now, he had appropriate boldness. Read the life of Christ. Just, just pick up the Gospel of Mark and read through it. It takes probably 45 minutes to an hour if you read fairly slowly. And you just read through it, uh, or, or any other Gospels. But, but you see Christ being incredibly tender with prostitutes and drunks and tax collectors who are lamenting their sin and want to have them over to eat. He is incredibly kind to a, a woman who's been married multiple times and who's a Samaritan. Uh, he is unsparing, though in his withering criticism of people who thought they had an inside track with God because of what they did. If you read John chapter 3 and read it slowly, Nicodemus was an older man. Christ was younger. Christ was trying to show him respect, but he makes some statements that are pointedly in the heart of Nicodemus. You read Matthew 23 where he talks about woes to the Pharisees. He says some things about the Pharisees that you wouldn't say a lot about a lot, of, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of people that you might consider to be enemies. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. It's hard. So I, I, I read that. I've, I've got to tell you, I, I read that and, and I say to myself, self, you need to be appropriately bold and courageous in, in a time when courage is not applauded. I'll say this probably many times before the Lord takes me home, but the people who are going to have to be courageous are the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings. It appears that 
there is a growing divide between the culture and what the church has always believed, and you're just going to have to be appropriately bold to speak for Jesus. You are. And I, I say appropriately bold. I mean, in one passage, we're going to have to think through and meditate on and pray, Holy Spirit, make this part of my life. Come, Almighty God, is First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and following. Let me just read it. We'll start in verse 14, but, but even if, you're, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them. And he's writing to a church, an Asia Minor that's getting ready to go into a 273-year persecution. Long persecution. And he says this, have no fear of them, nor, nor be troubled, but, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, and do this with gentleness and respect as you keep a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There's three steps. Number one, you always sanctify or make Christ holy in your heart. You adore Jesus. You worship him. You glory in him. Number two, and when you're asked to give a reason for the hope, the living hope, he says in chapter one, it's a living hope for, for the hope that you have, for the reason you're not sliding into despair, for the reason you don't have existential oxed. You, you give a reason and you do this with gentleness and with respect. Number three, as you keep a clear conscience. And I fear sometimes in our culture, we just see pugilistic people that throw Molotov cocktails without speaking with gentleness and respect. You speak with boldness, church, but you do it with gentleness and respect. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. Anybody can be mean and vituperative and memorize two or three lines to whittle people down. But it takes a spirit-filled, Christ-energized, holy man or woman to stand and speak with dignity and respect to the culture around them. You're called to do that. You know the word. You live the word. You pray it into your life and say, God, give me grace. And then you keep a clear conscience. Keep a clear conscience. And we're called to do that. John was great because he spoke with appropriate boldness. Now, I've got a little phones, iPhone, like most of you have, and I think I have a five, but whatever. But I, I punched in certain dates, like March 28th, every March 28th at 9 o'clock in the morning, there's a beep, 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 pulled up, March 28th, 1758, Jonathan Edwards died. So I just stopped, and I, I remember the life of Jonathan Edwards, one of my heroes, or um, November I think it's 18th, 1681. Beep, 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 beep. John Owen died. That type of thing. Some of you have beep, beep, beep. January 3rd, 1982. Clemson won the national championship. But I don't, I don't do that, okay? So, so this week on Tuesday, my phone beeped. Beep, 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 beep. Pull it up. October the 6th, 1536, William Tyndale was burned at the stake. Let me tell you a little bit about William Tyndale. William Tyndale from England. In fact, there was a poll done among British people in 2002 about the 100 most important Britons in the history of Great Britain. And William Tyndale was 20, which I, I was very impressed with that. 
1536, uh, right behind Margaret Thatcher, and yes, John Lennon. But I mean, he was number 20. So at least the, the Britons knew who William Tyndale was. William Tyndale was uh, a man who loved the gospel. In a time when the gospel was not embraced in England, he was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And so William Tyndale kept saying, you've got to read the Bible alone. Other things will kill you, but you've got to read the Bible. And he had this big you know, debate with a leader of the church of that day. And the leader of the church of that day said in a sneering fashion, we had better be without God's laws than to be without the Pope's laws. And William Tyndale said this. Just back up. So, so Martin Luther said, he said, and Tyndale said, that, that councils and popes and preachers can err. You get a bunch of people together, even though they name the name of Christ, they can write things that aren't true. And popes can say things that aren't true, and, and preachers. So that, that, that just happens. But he says, but God's word never errs. So we, we say scripture alone. Okay. So Tyndale says, to this leader of the church. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares me, all of his laws that are contrary to Scripture are not supported by Scripture. And then he says this, and this is one of the great lines in the history of, of the church. If God spares my life, ere many years from now, I will cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. So he was all about translating the Bible from Latin into English. He said, people need the word of God. Because when you read the word of God, the Holy Spirit comes in. When you read the word of God, you can read about the glory of the cross of Christ. When you read the word of God and the glory of Christ comes in, you're, you're changed. We need the word of God. And the church said, no, you can't have the word of God in your vernacular. It's got to be in Latin. They can't be interpreted. You got, and Tino says, that's a, bunch, that's a bunch of junk. We need the word of God. And so he was hounded. He was chased. He goes to Belgium. The British say, send him back because he wrote a track about Henry VIII, remember Henry VIII? Henry VIII was divorcing Anne Boleyn because he didn't like her. And, and William Tyndale wrote a tract saying, Henry VIII is in deep sin because there's not one reason to divorce Anne Boleyn. He needs to repent. Well, Henry didn't like that track. And so they wanted him to be extradited from Belgium back to England. And the Belgian people said, well, Belgian leadership said no. So they sent some people over there and he was betrayed by a friend. They knocked him out, put him under a blanket and took him back to England. Uh, put him in the Tower of London, brought him out for trial, and they said, you've got to recant of your position. You've got to do this and this and this. He said, he said basically, this the word of God teaches me I'm wrong. I can't recant. I can't, I can't pull back. And the day of his execution came, and they tied this man to the stake. He's 42 years old. They bound his hands, and they lit the fire underneath his feet, the kindling, and then someone strangled him to death. And the last words he cried out in a choking fashion was this, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. He died. Four years later, <laughs> the Bible was published in English, the book that changed the world and changed the British Empire. 
we need to be people of courage. To, to speak with respect, to speak with dignity, to speak though as men and women whose lips have been touched, as Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, with a coal from the fire of the living God. We're his. John the Baptist was great because he knew his place, he knew his message, and he spoke with appropriate boldness. There are heroes who are walking among us today. Do not buy the lie that your life is a dull treadmill of existence. You're called to be heroic. Amen. We'll stand. We'll close in prayer. Let's stand. Lord, we are uh, your people. We have proclaimed that this morning at the Lord's table. And, uh, and, and Lord, um, we confess that you are glorious and you're great and you're good and we know that sin is odious and so help us to be repenting people who turn from sin because we've seen the beauty of all that you are for us in Christ and we run the way of the, the, way of the Lord. Uh, just thank you for that. Um, help us to be men and women who show a noble spirit and a noble character because we know our place. Lord, you must increase but we must decrease Lord, we say with great joy and gladness and cheerfulness and resolve, we are not worthy to touch the sandals on your feet, Lord God. Uh, may we be heroic because we know the message, the message of the gospel. And may we show a life of heroic nobility because we're people who repent. And may we speak with appropriate boldness to those around us. Uh, we, we pray to be people of broken, gracious, caring courage in a time when people who dare to make courageous statements are often mocked. Uh, so have mercy upon us, Lord, and make us your people. And may the good news of Jesus explode all over our city this week, all over our campuses all over our subdivisions, all over our relationships. Just may we be glad-hearted men and women who understand that we have been called unto you to proclaim the goodness of Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.